Welcome to Open Plaza Talks, created by the Hispanic Theological Initiative. Each episode focuses on a topic that matters to you, whether you're in the field, the academy, or the clergy. Today we bring you a conversation between Jacqueline Hidalgo and Nestor Medina. They'll be talking about Jacqueline's book, Revelation in Atzlan. For more information about today's episode, please visit us at htiopenplaza.org. To all of our listeners, welcome, bienvenidos. Today, I'm here with my good friend and colleague, Dr. Jackie Hidalgo. Jackie, why don't you give a shout out to our listeners? Hola, que tal, folks? <laughs> it's good to, uh, good to be here. I'm really honored to get to speak with um, Dr. Nestor Medina today. Uh, he has been an, an inspirational scholar for me for a very long time. Oh, no, I'm going to start. No, 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 don't do that. I'm going to start blushing. That's no good. That's no good. This, this <laughs> podcast is about you. So let me just uh, be a bit more formal. Dr. Hidalgo is a professor of Latinx studies and religion at William College in Williamstown, Massachusetts. I am actually particularly delighted to be here because today you will be talking to us a little bit about your book titled Revelation in Aztlán, Scriptures, Utopias, and the Chicano Movement. And so to, to get this kind of started up, um, I know that writing a book is a very, very long journey. I don't know about you, but I, I I'm, have personal experience of that. So why don't you kind of tell us a little bit about how that journey was for you. Do you want the long version or the short version? And Somewhere down the middle. <laughs> and I say that because there are facets of this book that I would not have known how to name them at the time, but, but there are questions behind this book that started when I was a child. Mm. I am of Costa Rican background. That's my, my particular facet of Latinidad. But I spent my childhood in territory, Colorado and Kansas City, where to be Latino or Latina was to be of ethnic Mexican descent. So my understanding of Latinidad was triangulated through what I understood about at the time, the Mexican-Americans around me and the, the neighborhoods we shared. At the same time, especially being a teenager in Kansas City, Latinos were present, but they were a very serious minority, especially mm. in that era. Times have changed, but, but in the 90s, they were a real minority. And race relations were very black and white in terms of African-American and white U.S. context and religion was dominated by white evangelicalism, but I was a Catholic and a Tika by background. And I give you all of that background to say that it raised a lot of questions in my mind about issues around race, the relationships between race and religion, and the relationships between these different 
religio-racial groups and the politics of their relationship with things that I would call scriptures Mm -hmm. and the politics of their relationship with land. I would not have been able to name any of those things on that those terms at the time. Then I went to college and because those questions were in my mind ultimately I studied religion as a major because it was an opportunity to think about some of these issues but my religion major had very little information on Latina or Latino contexts. At the same time I took courses in the newly started Latina Latino Studies program at Columbia, where I was an undergrad, it had literally just opened its doors as a program the year I started college. They didn't have a director when I started college. And I remember the comparative dearth of discussion of religion Mm -hmm. in those classes. And the time I was really struck by it was in reading El Plan Espiritual de Aztlán. To me, this reeked of so much religious rhetoric and it was shocking to me that there was absolutely no discussion of religion in reading that text. Now I want to bracket that journey and but that's a sort of long form background to say when I eventually end up in graduate school working in a critical comparative scriptures program with a focus and a training in New Testament, mind you, but in a comparative scriptures program studying with Vincent Wimbush, I start being able to return to questions I have about scriptures and people. And I'm living in California. And so questions about the, the politics of especially a California version of Chicano identity, the politics of of land and space and the way that it's claimed, again, return to the foreground. So in some ways, and it takes years to go from what I wrote in my dissertation to then what becomes this book, but it starts because here I am again in territory that it was Mexico, the way Colorado had been Mexico, in a much more diverse Latinx community in California, but again, dominated by a ethnic Mexican imaginary in history. But finally given the opportunity to think about religion and Latinidad together. And then I have my job at Williams College, which forces me to be not only a religion scholar, but also a Latina Latino studies scholar. And it was a wonderful opportunity to deepen the questions of my dissertation by really taking the history of Latina Latino studies, and in the case of this book, Chicano studies, seriously, as a conversation partner for the study of scriptures. Right. Well, I, I'm really happy about your answer, particularly because you kind of anticipated my 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 following question. So this is really good for me. Um, now, the title of the book um, it's, it's it's a curious combination of. Uh, a revelation in Aztlán, Scriptures, Utopia, and the Chicano Movement. It kind of weaves together uh, historical movements, historical documents like El Plan Espiritual de Aztlán, as you already mentioned, El Plan de Santa Bárbara, biblical scriptural tradition and imagery, specifically the Book of Revelations. I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about how you connect those mm-hmm. in your book. So... One of the things that I have mentioned to you over the years, and I'll just reiterate it again for our listeners, 
in some ways, this book took a, a, tr a biblical scholarly approach in that it focused on a particular set of texts and used them as a way of thinking about broader dynamics, maybe too many dynamics, as you gathered from my long <laughs> journey story. But it takes, uh, takes the book of Revelation, really specifically the appendix associated with the New Jerusalem, and puts some of its history of interpretation in conversation with El Plan Espiritual de Astlan, which was written in March of 1969 at a Denver Youth Conference, and El Plan de Santa Barbara, which came out of an April 1969 conference in Santa Barbara, California, but gets published in October of 1969. I look at these texts in order to think about how communities go about creating texts that have a sort of scriptural function. And by that, I mean that they become centering, they become reflective for people of communal concerns, of questions of identity. And most importantly, and I think often under-discussed in defining scriptures, they become loci for contestation mm. of those identities. So what makes them scriptures is not that they are always clear or standing definitively and defiantly for one way of being quote-unquote Christian or quote-unquote Chicano or Chicano or Chicanequis, but that they are the sites that, that they serve as reference for people when they can test those identities with each other. Part of my argument then is to use that conversation to think big picture, because specifically by looking at the Book of Revelation and its reception history and these Chicano movement era texts from 1969, um, but also how they've been received. So I don't just end in 1969. Right. I interview people who were involved with those documents, but I also look at how they've been revisited and contested in the literature. By looking at these in conversation, I'm also thinking about minoritized communities who feel unhomed by a dominating empire. So in the case of the Book of Revelation, I'm talking about a Jewish diasporic community. There's not a lot we can necessarily know about the earliest communities that wrote the text, but we can know that they were heavily invested in Jewish stories, Jewish traditions, Jewish texts, and that they described themselves as living in diaspora. Mm -hmm. And as I note in the book, and that they were likely responding to a, a fairly recent Roman imperial destruction of, of the temple in their home of Jerusalem, their imagined home. These might have been people who'd been in diaspora for generations, but right. Jerusalem was still a significantly imagined home. In the case of the Chicano movement, we're talking about people who are grappling with living on what for them is an ancestral homeland, whether literally, as it was for many, or it, in an imagination of sorts that is understood as Aztlan, which they mobilize in, in El Plan Espiritual, well, El Plan de Aztlan, also called El Plan, El Plan Espiritual de Aztlan, really um, after the preface from the poet Alurista, naming Aztlan as the mythical Aztec homeland and saying Aztlan is the space of the Southwest where Chicanos are and that they are reclaiming 
that land is theirs. That, again, we're talking about a minoritized community that is still in their home but has felt unhomed by a dominating empire, in this case, the U.S. And thinking about how do people who feel unhomed turn to texts and why do they turn to texts as a way of making home and ultimately what I argue is sort of making home in and through text. So in that way, I'm also making a case about how scriptures are not simply objects. They're actual media of reflection in certain ways. So um, so far, you are kind of focused on, on how oppressed communities use scripture to imagine alternative social possibilities, if I can say that. But I suspect a scripture can also be manipulated, can be used as a tool for social power and oppression. So, so can you tell us a little bit more about that? So almost certainly. In my book, I have several key moments where I flag especially the ways that these key texts have also been viewed as and contested as loci for oppression for what might be termed in a kind of memi or frarian sense, horizontal oppression, right? Um, that I have, when I talk about the book of Revelation, I talk about the, the use of gender and sexual imagery within that text. I also talk about its history of being used for imperialism, being used f to justify settler colonization in the Western Hemisphere. When I talk about El Plan Espiritual de Aztlan, I talk about the way that Aztlan itself is embedded in a certain version of what was an imperial myth, that it relies on colonizing the already existing indigenous people in the Southwest in certain ways, that there are challenges of dynamics of the diversity of race within the Chicano community that are being glided over mm -hmm. in the use of Aztlan. And I also specifically talk about feminist and queer critical responses to both El Plan Espiritual, Espiritual de Aztlan and El Plan de Santa Barbara. And I talk about them as a way of making another kind of argument. In some ways, you know these texts are scriptures because people have to contest them. Right. And they have to fight over them and they have to point out how they've been mobilized. But I also do it so that in my view, I think when you look at feminist and queer hermeneutical practices, both in relationship to the Bible and in relationship to these planes, you see a different model of relating to text that still maintains its value, but strips it of some of what Vincent Wimbush might call its enslaving authority, um, gives it, it pulls it into a different kind mm. of relationship. And I think that that's an important lesson that feminist and queer hermeneutical practices in both contexts have to give us about how to relate to texts. Would you, I mean, this is a, just a very diff clear question, but would you, and briefly, would you say that contestation is intrinsic to the scriptures? Yes, the, I guess I, I would definitely say that. Something is not scripture if people are not fighting over it. Mm. like in some way, shape, or form. That's and a that's great insight. I mean, but um, additionally, what what other insights would you, I mean, if you, as you imagine your readers, mm -hmm. what, what insights would you, would you want them to come away with after reading your book? 
probably too many things, but I'll, I'll give you a couple <laughs> at a couple of different level, levels. Uh, the first I would give is, is at the level of scriptures, as you said, that I think one is to think of scriptures as, as community loci and to be asking questions about the work that scriptures are doing in community. And, in, and as I would argue, especially for communities that are unhomed, how we can see scriptures as homing devices, that they are places through which people make and imagine home and fight for home and contest home. So that would be one level. And that therefore, of course, they're sites of contestation because home sounds like a great place. Utopia sounds like a great place. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's often not for everyone. So, of course, that's why there are sites of contestation. People are always trying to make home better, hence the utopia part of my title. Right. Um, and also some of the wordplay I have about good place and no place, which is what I think scriptures tend to carry in them. They tend to carry an imagination of a good place that also isn't a real place. And following the arguments of Jose Esteban Munoz in Cruising Utopia, that's part of what allows them to work is that there's a utopia that one longs for, but it is also always a little bit out of reach. Right. So that would be that level. Then I have other arguments at the level of either the Book of Revelation or the Chicano movement that I'm happy to elucidate, but the scriptures argument is probably the big one and that I think that a conversation between the Book of Revelation and the Chicano movement helps us to see those facets of Scripture. Are there any plans to develop those further later on? or There are definite ways in which I hope to pick up on different strands of this argument and take them in different ways, some of which I've already done in smaller essays. One thing that I felt I didn't really get to give space to was to has to do with thinking about religion and the religious in the Chicano movement mm. and thinking about how the Chicano movement challenges our normative definitions of religion and that I think that Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latinx studies has recently really taken on this turn towards spirituality. And I think that there would actually be a lot to be gained for them fighting to redefine religion on their terms. Mm. And that I think that there could be a lot gained in really bringing a better conversation between Latinx studies and religion together that in part hinges on the ongoing fight over the definition of religion. And that I think religion as a term can be reimagined as not necessarily about churches per se, but about certain kinds of practices of community that ground themselves in something in something else as well. And so I have an essay where I talk a little bit about that. I also talk a little bit more about some of the queer critical responses to scriptures in, in another essay I've written, and something I think I would more long-term like to do is return to notions of family and kinship and how scriptures work as a kind of fictive 
bond and tissue in fictive kinship, but through queer Latinx critical lenses as a, as a jumping off point. And that's something that I've imagined proposing, and at this point in my life, I'm going to call that imagined book project scriptural infidelity. And that would be the sort of play of that project. Um, and then another thing that I, I obviously want to keep thinking about or pressing on perhaps has to do with notions of land and territory and the way they relate to text and the ways that our, our notions of text shape land and territory and shape an epistemological framework that I call revelation, right? And that's something else I want to return to is the, the epistemology of revelation and the way that I think certain Latina feminist imaginations in particular interrupt this notion of pulling back a veil on knowledge and maybe offer a different model. So... Well, there, we could spend a whole lot of time talking about this. This is a delight, uh, Jackie, and I want to thank you. I also want to thank our listeners. This is Dr. Jacqueline Hidalgo. Thank you so much for your time, Nestor, and for being in conversation with me and for reading my book. Thanks to our listeners. We're signing off. <laughs> Hasta pronto. This has been an HTI production. For more information, visit us at htiopenplaza.org. The Hispanic Theological Initiative provides Open Plaza as a public service. The views expressed by the guests are their own. Their appearance on this program or any reference to a specific product or entity they represent does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by HTI.